0: CHAPTER TWO OF THE GAMBLER by Fyodor Dostoevsky Translated by C.J. Hogarth This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jason Engulfsland I confess that I did not like it. Although I had made up my mind to play, I felt averse to doing so on behalf of someone else. In fact, it almost upset my balance, and I entered the gaming rooms with an angry feeling at my heart. At first glance, the scene irritated me, never at any time have i been able to bear the flunkeyishness which one meets in the press of the world at large but more especially in that of russia where almost every evening journalists write on two subjects in particular namely on the splendour and luxury of the casinos to be found in Rhenish towns and on the heaps of gold which are daily to be seen lying on their tables those journalists are not paid for doing so they write thus merely out of a spirit of a disinterested compliance for there is nothing splendid about the establishments in question and not only are there no heaps of gold to be seen lying on their tables but also there is little money to be seen at all of course during the season some madman or another may make his appearance generally an englishman or an asiatic or a turk and as had happened during the summer of which i write win or lose a great deal but as regards the rest of the crowd it plays only for petty golden and seldom does much wealth figure on the board when on the present occasion i entered the gaming rooms for the first time in my life It was several moments before I could even make up my mind to play. For one thing, the crowd oppressed me. Had I been playing for myself, I think I should have left at once, and never have embarked upon gambling at all. For I could feel my heart beginning to beat, and my heart was anything but cold-blooded. Also, I knew I had long ago made up my mind that never should I depart from Roulettenburg until some radical, some final change had taken place in my fortunes. Thus it must and would be. However ridiculous it may seem to you that I was expecting to win at Roulette, I look upon the generally accepted opinion concerning the folly and the grossness of hoping to win at gambling as a thing even more absurd. For why is gambling a whit worse than any other method of acquiring money? How, for instance, is it worse than trade? True, out of a hundred persons only one can win, yet what business is that of yours or of mine? At all events, I can find myself at first simply looking on, and then decided to attempt nothing serious. Indeed, I felt that, if I began to do anything at all, I should do it in an absent-minded, haphazard sort of way of that i felt certain also it behoved me to learn the game itself since despite a thousand descriptions of roulette which i have read with ceaseless avidity i knew nothing of its rules and had never seen it played in the first place everything about it seemed to me so foul so morally mean and foul yet i am not speaking of the hungry restless folk who by scores nay even by hundreds could be seen crowded around the gaming tables for in a desire to win quickly and to win much i can seem nothing sordid i have always applauded the opinion of a certain dead and gone but cocksure moralist, who replied to the excuse that one may always gamble moderately by saying that to do so makes things worse since in that case the profits too will always be moderate insignificant profits and sumptuous profits do not stand on the same footing no it is all a matter of proportion what may seem a small sum to a rothschild may seem a large sum to me and it is not the fault of stakes or of winnings that everywhere men can be found of winning can be found depriving their fellows of something, just as they do at Roulette. As to the question whether stakes and winnings are, in themselves, immoral is another question altogether, and I wish to express no opinion upon it. Yet the very fact that I was in full of a strong desire to win caused this gambling for gain, in spite of its attendant squalor, to contain, if you will, something intimate, something sympathetic, to my eyes. For it is always pleasant to see men dispensing with ceremony, and acting naturally, in an unbuttoned mood. Yet, why should I so deceive myself? I could see that the whole thing was a vain and unreasoning pursuit, and what, at the first glance, seemed to me the ugliest feature in this mob of roulette players, was a respect for their occupation, the seriousness, and even the humility, with which they stood around the gaming tables. Moreover, I had always drawn sharp distinctions between a game which is demovie genre and a game which is permissible to a decent man. In fact, there are two sorts of gaming, namely the game of the gentleman and the game of the plebes, the game for gain, the game for the herd heron has said i draw sharp distinctions yet how essentially base are the distinctions for instance a gentleman may stake say five or ten louis d'or seldom more unless he is a very rich man when he may stake say a thousand francs but he must do this simply for the love of the game itself simply for sport simply in order to observe the process of winning or of losing and, above all things, as a man who remains quite uninterested in the possibility of issuing a winner. If he wins, he will be at liberty, perhaps, to give vent to a laugh, or to pass a remark on the circumstance to a bystander, or to stake again, or to double his stake. But even this he must do solely out of curiosity, and for the pleasure of watching the play of chances and of calculations, and not because of any vulgar desire to win. In a word, he must look upon gaming-table, upon roulette, upon trente-quarante, as more relaxations which have been arranged solely for his amusement. Of the existence of the lures and gains upon which the bank is founded and maintained, he must profess to have not in England. Best of all, he ought to imagine his fellow gamblers and the rest of the mob, which stands trembling over a coin, to be equally rich and gentlemanly with himself, and playing solely for recreation and pleasure. This complete ignorance of realities, this in innocence view of mankind, is what, in my opinion, constitutes the truly aristocratic. For instance, I have even seen fond mothers so far indulge their guileless, elegant daughters, misses of fifteen or sixteen as to give them a few gold coins and teach them how to play. And though the young ladies may have won or have lost, they have invariably laughed and departed as though they were well pleased. In the same way I saw a general once approach the table in a stolid, important manner. A laquais darted to offer him a chair, but the general did not even notice him. Slowly he took out his money-bags, and slowly attracted three hundred francs in gold, which he staked on the black and won. Yet he did not take up his winnings. He left them there, on the table. Again the black turned up, and again he did not gather in what he had won and when, in the third round, the red turned up, he lost, at a stroke, 12,000 francs. Yet even then he rose with a smile, and thus preserved his reputation. Yet I knew that his money-bags must be chafing his heart, as well as that, had the stake been twice or thrice as much again, he would still have restrained himself from venting his disappointment. On the other hand I saw Frenchmen Frenchman first win, and then lose, 30,000 francs cheerfully, and without a murmur. Yes, even if a gentleman should lose his whole substance— he must never give way to annoyance money must not be subservient to gentility as never to be worth a thought of course the supremely aristocratic thing is to be entirely oblivious of the mire of rabble with its setting but sometimes reverse course may be aristocratic to remark to scan and even to gape at the mob for preference through lorgnet even as though one were taking the crowd and its squalor for a sort of rare show which had been organized specially for gentlemen's gentleman's diversion Though one may be squeezed by the crowd, one must look as though one were fully assured of being the observer, of having neither part nor lot with the observed. At the same time, to stare fixedly about one is unbecoming, for that, again, is ungentlemanly, seeing that no spectacle is worth an open stare, are no spectacles in the world which merit from a gentleman to pronounce an inspection. However, to me personally, the scene did seem to be worth undisguised contemplation, more especially in view of the fact that I had come there not only to look at, but also to number myself sincerely and wholeheartedly with the mob. As for my secret moral views, I had no room for them amongst my actual practical opinions. Let that stand as a written, I am writing only to relieve my conscience. Yet let me say also this, that from the first I have been consistent in having an intense aversion to any trial of my acts, and thoughts by a moral standard, another standard altogether has directed my life. As a matter of fact, the mob was playing in exceedingly foul fashion. Indeed, I have an idea that sheer robbery was going on around the gaming table. The croupiers, who sat at the two ends of it, had not only to watch the stakes but also to calculate the game, an immense amount of work for two men. As for the crowd itself, well, it consisted mostly of Frenchmen. Yet I was not then taking notes merely in order to be able to give you a description of roulette, but in order to get my bearings as to my behavior when I myself should begin to play. For example, I had noticed that nothing was more common than for another's hand to stretch out and grab one's winnings whenever one had won. Then there would arise a dispute, and frequently an uproar, and it would be a case of, I beg of you to prove and to produce witness to the fact that the stake is yours. At first the proceedings were pure Greek to me. I could only divine and distinguish that stakes were hazarded on numbers, and on odd or even, and on colors. Polina's money I decided to risk, that evening only to the amount of a hundred golden. The thought that I was not going to play for myself quite unnerved me. It was an unpleasant sensation, and I tried hard to banish it. I had a feeling that, once I had begun to play for Polina... I should wreck my own fortunes. Also, I wonder if anyone has ever approached a gaming table without falling, an immediate prey to superstition. I began by pulling out 50 golden and staking them on even. The wheel spun and stopped at 13. I had lost. With a feeling like a sick qualm, as though I would like to make my way out of the crowd and go home, I staked another 50 golden, this time on red. The red turned up. Next time I staked the 100 golden just where they lay, and again the red turned up again i staked the whole sum and again the red turned up clutching my four hundred and i placed two hundred of them on twelve figures to see what would come of it the result was the croupier paid me out three times my total stake thus from a hundred golden my store had grown to eight hundred upon that such a curious such an inexplicable unwonted feeling overcame me that i decided to depart always the thought kept recurring to me that if i had been playing for myself alone i should never have had such luck Once more I staked the whole 800 golden on the even, the wheel stopped at four. I was paid out another 800 golden, and snatching up my pile of 1600, departed in search of Polina Alexandrovna. I found the whole party walking in the park, and was able to get an interview with her only after supper. This time the Frenchman was absent from the meal, and the general seemed to be in a more expansive vein. Among other things, he thought it necessary to remind me that he would be sorry to see me playing at gaming tables. In his opinion, such conduct would greatly compromise him. "'especially if I were to lose much. "'And even if you were to win, much I should be compromised,' "'he added in a meaning sort of way. "'Of course I have no right to order your actions, "'but you yourself will agree that,' "'as usually he did not finish his sentence, "'I answered dryly that I had very little money in my possession, "'and that, consequently, I was hardly in a position "'to indulge in my conspicuous play, even if I did gamble. "'At last, when ascending to my room, "'I succeeded in handling Polina her winnings, "'and told her that, next time, I should not play for her why not she asked excitedly because i wish to play for myself i replied with a vain glance of astonishment that is my sole reason then are you so certain that your roulette playing will get us out of your difficulties she inquired with a quizzical smile i said very seriously yes and then added possibly my certainty about winning may seem to you ridiculous yet pray leave me in peace Nonetheless, she insisted that I ought to go halves with her in the day's winnings, and offer me eight hundred golden on condition that henceforth I gambled only on those terms. But I refused to do so, once and for all, stating as my reason that I found myself unable to play on behalf of any one else. I am not willing so to do, I added, but in all probability I should lose. "'Well, absurd though it be, I place great hopes on your playing of roulette,' she remarked musingly. "'Wherefore, you ought to play as my partner and on equal shares.' wherefore of course you will do as i wish then she left me without listening to any further protest on my part end of chapter 2 recording by jason in Golfsland. minnesota visit my blog at ingonotes.blogspot.com